You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, kids, you can uh, make your way out. Your teacher will meet you uh, at the back and uh, take you on downstairs. Those of you who are remaining, go ahead and pull out your Bible. We're going to have God's Word open in front of us. Um, And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read easily, please take one of these. We want you to have it. It would be a delight to have to replace that Bible. Um, So, uh, yeah, open it up. Colossians chapter 1. Um, I don't know about you, it's a simple pleasure, but I love getting the mail. Anyone else with me on that? I mean, there's the anticipation of walking to the mailbox. Uh, you turn the, the funny little key and open the door, and, and, and any number of treasures could be hiding in that dark little box. And so you pull them out, and you rifle through the the flyers and those strange envelopes that have no address on them but still somehow end up in your mailbox. And, and in amongst all of that, if you're really lucky, there might be a letter. For those of you born after like 1985, that's, a, that's like an email but on paper. You may have got one from your grandma at one time. Um, we get a letter. And uh, without even thinking about it, you, you look at this letter and, and you are immediately answering a volley of questions. Who's it from? What's it about? Why was it sent? And and the answers to those questions change the way that you read it, what you expect to find uh, in the letter. Is it a a legal summons or a love letter? Is it a a bill from a service provider or is it a postcard from a friend? Well, today we open a new letter as a church. Not a new letter, it's a pretty old letter, but we're starting into it for the first time. Um, Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by Paul to the church. And so um, we're going to spend from from now until June looking through Colossians 1 and 2. And come uh, the summer, we're going to just look through a a smattering of different psalms. And then uh, back into chapter 3 in September. And and we'll stay in Colossians then through till Christmas. So there's the roadmap ahead of us. Um, But as we open up this letter, just like any other letter, we need to know. Who's this letter from? What kind of letter is it? Uh, In in this case, we're actually kind of the third party. We're eavesdropping here. And so we need to ask, who is it to? And we need to understand a little bit about the original recipients. And so that's our job today, looking at Colossians 1. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 and and just try to wrap our minds around the basic details of the letter. Um, But there's a lot in there. I think there's a lot in there for us. So... um, Let me read this section for us, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Would you pray with me as we enter into this book? Father, Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word, for these uh, precious words. Not just the words of men, um, but God's word handed down from on high, preserved for us that we might read them, that we might meet you in them. Lord, I pray uh, for the months ahead as we work through the book of Colossians and, and specifically for right now, God, that you would open our eyes to see your truth, that we would humbly submit to it. God, that your word um, would challenge us and confront us in ways that we need it to. God, that it would strengthen and encourage us, build us up in ways that we need. Lord, that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ, that that we would know and live in the new life that we have in him for your glory. God, we pray in Jesus' name.
So, this introduction. It's pretty standard. It's pretty simple. Um, very, very common introduction in Paul's day. Um, you don't have to look uh, all the way down to the end of the letter to see who wrote it to you, who signed it at the bottom. Um, they would put it right up front. The, the author would introduce himself and give a simple greeting to the recipients. Um, but even in this standard kind of predictable introduction, um, there's a lot there. Paul, Paul is, is packing things in very intentionally, um, looking forward to what he's about to say. And so the first piece that we need to put in place, um, this letter is written to um, the church of Colossians. So who are they? That's point number one, the, the, the church of Colossians. As I said, um, this letter was not written to us directly. Um, if you look at Scripture, it's a helpful principle to remember it's not written to you, but it is written for you. And so we need to understand who it's written to so that we can understand what is for us. It's not to you, but it is for you. And so we're right to be eavesdropping, but we need to understand the, the conversation that we're eavesdropping on. Um, Colossians. It's called the book of the Colossians because it's written to the church in a city called Colossae. Um, Colossae is located in modern-day Turkey. Uh, in Paul's day, that was called Asia Minor. So we throw that map up there. Um, I don't know if you can see that well. I hope you can. Just to give you a lay of, of the world, I don't know if you know where this is. Um, so you see down the bottom, that's Egypt. So that's the Africa is going down this way. Um, if we go over more to the, to the left, you're going to find um, Italy and Rome and Europe is there. Um, down here, this is, so you have Syria, you're going to have um, Iraq and Iran and the Middle East, and then up over there is Russia. So it's right in the middle of kind of this conglomeration. Um, you see down in the bottom, there's Judea, Jerusalem. That's, that's Israel down there, just tiny uh, on the world scale. Um, and then the blue arrow is Colossae. Um, so that's where Paul is, is riding to this little town. Um, Paul traveled, um, this is a map of the, the second missionary journey. Um, so he was in the area generally of Colossae, and he was there a number of times. But as far as we know, he never stopped in that city. And, and that's not too surprising. Um, Colossae was an old city, and, and for a time it was a very prominent city. But by the day of Paul, um, it had really faded into kind of obscurity. Um, I, I wonder, actually, I haven't been here long enough, I wonder if Olds kind of fits that, like Highway 2A used to come through here, and, and we were maybe a bit more of a hub, and now there's, you know, Calgary and Red Deer, and they built Highway 2. That's exactly what happened to Colossae. They were on an intersection of some major highways, uh, and the cities around them grew, and so those highways kind of diverged over and no longer went through Colossae, and, uh, and, it, and it fell out of prominence. And so... Um, our best guess, actually about 50 years after the writing of this letter, uh, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake, and, and it looks like it was never properly rebuilt. Uh, and so Colossae, um, the church there is not started by Paul, um, but as we're looking at this map of Paul's second missionary journey, so he left Judea and up around through Cappadocia and Galatia and, and then through Asia and up to Macedonia, all the way around through Achaia to Corinth, back then to Ephesus, and the green arrow doesn't show up as well as I had hoped, but you see Ephesus there on the, um, on the uh, what is that, southwest corner of Asia Minor. Um, Paul camped out there for quite a while, um, probably about three years total. Um, he rented a, a hall, much like we rented the, the hall down in uh, the, the rec center there, and uh, the Hall of Tyrannus, where the, the philosophers would come and preach, and, and he taught there. Um, for at least two years. So Acts 19.10 says this. Just, just think of the implications of this little verse. This continued, Paul teaching at the Hall of Tyrannus, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So his teaching there in, the, in Ephesus um, continued and spread through that whole red area of Asia Minor. And uh, everybody heard it. Specifically, based on what we read in the book of Colossians, uh, it seems that there was a young man named Epaphras. And uh, Epaphras was listening to Paul preach, was so moved by the gospel. Not only did he give his life for Christ, um, but he took that good news a um, hundred miles down the road to Colossae, and, and he shared the gospel in Colossae. And one by one, people began to get saved and to gather, and a new church was born. 
And, and, and so um, I think many of you here remember those years. Um, you've been part of that. We're about six years in, uh, and that's about the age that the church in Colossae was. They were about five years old um, when Paul had been arrested and, and taken to Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. And it was there in Rome, under house arrest, who should show up at his door but young Epaphras. Paul, we need your help. And he begins to share with Paul um, what's been going on in Colossae. I, we don't know if Paul knew Epaphras before that. I, I, I wonder, uh, maybe Epaphras was one of those kind of eager students, was always up after the lecture asking questions. Maybe Paul even sent him, hey, go to Colossae with my blessing and start a church there. Maybe he was just a quiet guy, hung out at the back and learned and, and grew and, and, and made his way to Colossae. We don't know what happened or if they knew each other prior to that. Um, but Epaphras would have told Paul about the starting of the church in Colossae. And you can imagine how excited Paul would be to hear that, that the, that the gospel had taken root there and continued to grow. And, and, and Epaphras even tells him it's spreading out from there even to the whole world. Um, the gospel's going forward, Paul. And, and, and he's telling them, um, you know what, the church here loves you. Um, they love you in the spirit. Um, they knew who their spiritual grandfather was. But then the bad news. Though the church is at least mostly staying faithful, there is this growing threat. There's trouble on the horizon, Paul. There's a false teaching, a false doctrine of some kind that is, that is beginning to, to stress the church, beginning to threaten the church. And uh, we know it today only as uh, the Colossian heresy. That's what we call it. Um, and uh, the reason we call it that is the book of Colossians is really the only place we hear about it. So we don't have a whole lot of understanding of what's going on. Um, we don't even know what Epaphras told Paul. All we know is what Paul wrote back to the Colossians. And so it's very much like listening to one half of a phone conversation and trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And so there's not a whole lot we know for sure. But as we read Paul and kind of read into why would he say this? Why would he say that? Um, it seems that he's correcting um, a heresy that, that comes from kind of two major streams. The first stream is, is definitely some form of Jewish legalism, right? And so Paul's warning them through the book, um, don't submit to observing these certain holy days. Don't get wrapped up in, in food laws and festivals and Sabbaths and new moons. Don't, don't go back there, right? This is this is very much the, the Seventh-day Adventists of our day, right? I mean, this is, is going back to those things. And, and the language that Paul uses is, is distinctly Jewish. Um, it's very much like the church in Galatia. Uh, the church in Colossae was in danger of getting pulled back into those old practices. And, and Paul's saying, hold on. Those celebrations, those laws from the Old Testament, the, the idea of the Sabbath and the Passover, those traditions, um, they were a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus is here now. So don't go back to the shadow. Like they served their purpose. They had a role in pointing to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we don't need the shadow anymore. We don't go back to that. Uh, breaks my heart. There are so many, it seems today, that are getting sucked back into, into Jewish traditions. And it's nifty. I love, we did a Seder dinner two years ago. I would love to do it again, just looking at the Jewish traditions and, and the things that uh, through the Passover that point to Christ. There's, there's value in that in its place, but, but we go directly to Christ now. That's the heart of our worship. Um, those things are, are curiosities. Now, but it's not all Jewish. It's not all the old ways of Israel. Um, there's something else there. Mixed in that Jewish legalism, it seems that uh, there was also this kind of warped, twisted ideas from the modern intellectual, philosophical climate of the day. And so if you're familiar with the idea of Gnosticism, um, this isn't it. Gnosticism didn't really kind of formalize until about 75 years later. Um, but but maybe this is like the seeds of Gnosticism. This is the beginning of it. It's kind of an unofficial... Um, early Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism gets its name from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And the premise, the idea of it, it's much bigger than this, obviously, but was that your spiritual life is found 
in, in these kind of deeper experiences of, of greater knowledge, of this hidden wisdom. And so as it mixed with Christianity, um, they taught, you know, Jesus is fine, and your baptism, that's a good start, but you need, you need these visions and revelation. You need something just a little bit more. If you want true Christianity, you need to get this higher, deeper knowledge that, that comes, and, and that's really the end game. We also know from Colossians, um, mixed in, could have come either from the Gnosticism or the Judaism. They both had elements of this, but they began to worship angels at some capacity. And so it's with that kind of in the background, this, this Jewish legalism, Gnosticism, worship of angels that, that Paul is writing to this church to, to encourage them, to strengthen them. Epaphras is worried. They're, they're holding faithful, but this teaching is gaining steam and, and it's confusing people. So that's the church at Colossae. Um, and, uh, and, and as we look at this introduction, we see uh, even here Paul is laying the foundation for what is ahead. Um, and, and he moves from, so we understand the church of Colossae. Um, Paul begins to outlay um, the authority of Colossians. That's point two, the authority of Colossians. As Paul gives his name, um, he gives more than just that. He says that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So he, he adds Timothy in there. Um, it doesn't seem to me that, that Timothy was actually a co-author, but he was with Paul and he was fairly well known. He was uh, in Ephesus with Timothy. They may have known him. And so, um, yeah, he, he lets them know Timothy's here with me as well. But as you read the letter, it, does, it starts with Paul and Timothy saying, we pray for you. But by verse 9, um, the we of Paul and Timothy uh, is replaced by the I of just Paul. And so I, I think Paul is the, by far the primary author here. Uh, but regardless of Timothy's involvement, the way that Paul introduces himself is so significant, um, drastically affects the way we read this letter. You can imagine Paul writing to this church He's hearing of these different teachers. No doubt there's some, some influential characters in those camps, some, some men that are pushing their weight around. And, uh, and, and he's, he sees how important it is for him to establish his authority. Like, why should we listen to you, Paul, rather than these others? And now, Epaphras has already told him that, that they love you, Paul. They know you. They love you. He doesn't spend a lot of time building that case. If you read Galatians, they're questioning his authority, and Paul just lays it out. This is why. This is what it means to be an apostle. This is my credentials. Um, he doesn't do that so much here. Um, he just kind of drops it. He just kind of lets them know. He gently reminds them. Um, the one writing to you is Paul, that Paul who is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So in one sense, um, the word apostle um, just means one who is sent. It's, it's a messenger, maybe an ambassador. And, and so it can be used fairly casually like that. You, you might send your son as your apostle to tell his father that it's dinner time. Um, that, that the word could be used that way. Um, but it also had a very formal sense in Scripture. And, and that, this is one of those times where it's used that way. Um, Jesus sent out all kinds of people, right? I mean, hundreds of people were sent by Jesus. Every one of us is, in the casual sense, an apostle being sent on the, on the Great Commission. And yet formally, properly, Jesus had 12 apostles. 12 apostles who were sent out as his official ambassadors, and he went out with his authority. And so it's the, it's the 12 disciples, men that, that he called by name, that he spent years specifically teaching and mentoring and training. Um, they were eyewitnesses not only of the life of Jesus, but of the resurrection of Jesus. They saw Jesus physically resurrected. One of the 12, 
Judas, who betrayed him, was replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Uh, and, and, and that was so that there would be 12. And, and there were certain credentials that Matthias had to meet. He had to have been with Christ through his ministry and a, and a physical witness of the resurrection. And then, uh, as they did back then, we don't anymore, they cast lots as a way to determine the will of the Holy Spirit in this. And Matthias replaces Judas so that there are 12. And that's significant. They are 12 in representing the 12 tribes of Israel. As the nation of Israel, as God's chosen people, comes to its climax in Christ and and then uh, gives way to this new reality, the church. So Ephesians 2.20 says that the, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. If you look ahead, uh, Revelation 21, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and it's built on 12 foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles on it. Apostleship is a big deal, big deal. Those 12 have their names inscribed in stone in heaven. And you say, well, wait a second. You're talking about the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. That Paul wasn't one of them. You're right. You're right. And yet on the road to Damascus, Paul was confronted by what? The resurrected Jesus. And Jesus commissioned Paul. He appointed Paul as the 13th apostle. Right? He sent him out as the one going out from Israel. He's the apostle to the Jews. He's the apostle to the rest of us to reach the world And so Paul refers to himself as an apostle, as one who is abnormally born. I'm the the late one. I'm the one that came an odd way. There's the 12 apostles and then me. Following the Damascus Road experience, Paul went up to Arabia. Read Galatians 1. It's it's so interesting. And and, and I'm sure not coincidentally, um, Jesus taught with his 12 disciples for three years here on earth before he went to the cross and Jesus knocks Paul off of his horse and then took him away into Arabia where Jesus, he spent three years there learning the gospel. And he says in Galatians, not from man, but from Christ. The the risen Jesus is teaching Paul. So all this is wrapped up In that little phrase, Paul's saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I come to you as the ambassador of Jesus Christ. Not just a wise man, not just a spiritual advisor or or kind of the spiritual grandfather, but as an official role, an official ambassador of Jesus Christ himself, um, speaking with all of the authority of an apostle of the church. And so all that to say two things. One Briefly, um, there are no apostles today, right? Whoever claims apostleship today has a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be an apostle and, and makes a claim to their own authority that is as dangerous as it is ludicrous. Don't walk, run. Somebody stands up here and says, I come to you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It, just walk out. It's time to go. Not interested. Um, now, I have some grace. There's some who want to use the lesser form of the word we're sent by Jesus, sure. But that office of apostleship, that's, that's a one and done. There are 13, and, and that's the foundation of the church. The other hand, um, with far greater implications for us, when we read the New Testament, one of the defining features is that this book is apostolic authority. Not every book was written directly by an apostle. And so you have maybe Mark, for instance. Mark wasn't in one of the original 12, um, but he wrote his gospel. Is this, is this eyewitness account, he wrote it with the help of Peter. And so Mark stands in our New Testament under the authority of the apostle Peter. So the New Testament has this apostolic foundation, the apostolic authority, and, and as does Colossians. It doesn't come to us as a suggestion. It doesn't come to us as kind of general wisdom. Hey, here's some advice. Give this some thought. Have you tried this? No, it comes with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. I, I don't see them so much today. Um, remember the red letter Bibles? Those still popular? 
Um, don't, I'm not bashing your red letter Bible. You don't have to burn it. It's okay. Um, but it's dangerous. I think there's a, I think there's a, 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 a just a hidden danger there. Um, again, I don't think there's any problem with it in itself. The problem is if we begin to distinguish between the red letters and the black letters. And, and people have done great danger, great damage with this. Um, the red ones, those are the words that really matter. That's what Jesus said. There's authority in that. Those are the important words. Read the red letters. But Paul, Peter, James, those are less important. That's less significant. That's kind of second level. Let's go with Jesus first and the apostles later. That's not the case. The whole Bible is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. Start to finish without error, trustworthy and true. And it comes to us with the personal authority of Jesus Christ. And actually, even your red letters in the Gospels, um, boy, you start comparing them. It's not that Jesus spoke and those red letters appear. It's that Jesus spoke and Matthew heard them and then Matthew wrote them down or summarized them. I don't think Jesus only taught for three minutes at a time. I think Matthew summarized large swaths of teaching um, as the Holy Spirit worked through him. What he wrote was God's word. And so Matthew's commentary that then gives way to Jesus, a quote from Jesus, there's no difference in where that's coming from. There's no difference in the the authority that's there and, and And the same as we move into the rest of the New Testament. It's not okay to say, well, Paul says that, but Jesus says this. I really like Jesus, Paul, not so much. Paul and Jesus come together. Paul is Jesus' chosen and inspired messenger. And he was writing as the Holy Spirit moved through him so that every word that he wrote is the very words of God. This is one of the reasons that we come back to expositional preaching, going through the Bible verse by verse, book by book, not not cherry picking a few verses here and there and not skipping over ones that we find difficult or ones that maybe don't agree with our particular bent. Um, And the goal is simply and clearly to explain what God has already written. I I do not want to take God's word and add my thoughts to it. I want to just take God's word and help us together understand it as it's written. That's what we need as the church. We don't need man's opinion. We don't need feel-good stories or anything else. What we need is the inspired word of God for us. So that's that's true for preaching the church. That's true for you at home in your personal life. That's true for you as, you as you lead your families, as you read God's word. Resist that temptation. Resist the temptation to stand in judgment over God's word. That is so, so common today. It's a, it's a blasphemous, blasphemous tendency that we have um, with, un, in us to, to read the Bible and think, maybe. I'll take that. Uh, I don't like that. I don't think that's legitimate. I don't think that fits with my ideals, with my principles, with my cultural values. So we're going to push that out and just go with these verses over here. If you read the Bible and you feel your heart responding, I don't like that, you need to repent of that. right? I mean, either, either you go with your heart and you correct the Bible, or you go with the Bible and you correct your heart. And it should always be the latter. And if you find that you're reading the Bible and it never conflicts with you, it never corrects you, you're never reading the Bible and going, I don't know that I've thought that way before, either you are the first and only person since Jesus Christ himself to live a life that is theologically and and, and impeccable. Or, and hint, you're not the first one, um, or you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with the Bible. God's word ought to make us uncomfortable because we're sinners and because we live in a fallen world. We have wrong ideas. We have sin in our lives. And so as we read, the Bible ought to make us uncomfortable. It ought to cross our cultural ideals and trends. It ought to confront the sin that is in us. It ought to crush the idols that we have. And it ought to correct us in our erring theology. Let it be authoritative in your life. 
And let me just say this. There is so much freedom in just saying, whatever the Bible says, I believe. There it is. Done. Whatever I read, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it at face value. I'm, I'm going to follow it. I'm going to submit myself completely to it. Uh, whether my heart rejoices or revolts does not matter. I am going to bend myself to God's word. Now, I get it. There's some difficulties. There's some passages that are hard to understand. No doubt we'll have disagreements on some of those secondary issues and what exactly that means. That's different. That's okay. We'll wrestle through those things. Um, but we can do that only so far as we are first submitting ourselves to Scripture. That we read and hear God's Word and we say, that's it. And it confronts us and we engage that. We accept that. That's the authority of Colossians. That's what the church in Colossae would have thought as they read that introduction, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. They would have held that letter all of a sudden and gone, oh my, this is important. This is significant. We have to listen. This isn't, this isn't advice. This is God's word. So that's the, the church of Colossians. That's the authority of Colossians. Um, the next thing we get a glimpse into is the message of Colossians. That's point three, the message of Colossians. So verse two says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That's a carefully worded greeting. That's intentional. Paul is setting the table for what's to come. He's, he's intentionally working things in um, to the saints the faithful brothers in Christ. He's, he's speaking to the church, specifically to those who are faithful, those who have not given themselves over to these false teachings, but have held fast to Jesus. And he says, you are saints. What's a saint? Maybe we think of the Catholic saints. They, they are the, the men and women who have been venerated by the church and, and they have lived these amazing lives and they've done a miracle and, and they are the front row seat in heaven. And so we pray to them because they can talk to Jesus for us. Not biblical. It's not, you won't find it. That's, that's wrong. No such thing as a saint in that way. Maybe you think of saint as someone who's particularly holy. They just have a really impressive moral character. You say, oh, that girl, she is a saint. Well, I get what you're saying, but that's not necessarily biblical either. Paul is speaking to the church, the church as a whole, all of the believers. Some of them would have been new believers. Some of them would have been still wrestling with maybe an illicit relationship, maybe uh, addiction to alcohol, maybe who knows what, still had filthy mouths and, and, and corrupt speech. They're just freshly saved and, and, and they haven't worked through those things yet. And yet Christ, or Paul says, you're a saint. He's speaking not of what they've done, but about where they stand positionally, where they stand before God. The word saint um, is a pretty simple meaning. It, it literally means holy ones to those holy ones. And at its root, the idea of holy um, means to be set apart, set aside. And, and, and what was it that set them apart? What was it that made them distinct, that made them saints and, and holy ones? Was it their exterior? Think about what Paul's laying down here. Are you a saint because of keeping the old Jewish traditions? Are you a saint because you've had kind of this higher knowledge and some great vision? Are you a saint because of your experience and wisdom? No, 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 no. They were holy. They were special and unique, chosen by God, not because of what they did, but because they were in Christ. They were God's beloved. They were his holy ones because of Christ. That was to be their hope. That was to be their identity. They were God's holy ones in Christ, and, and nothing else can compare to that. Nothing else can overshadow that. Nothing else can take you beyond what you have already as saints in Christ. What else could be better? I mean, just skimming through the, the book of Colossians. Colossians make some of the grandest statements of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ and, and who he is. 
the image of the invisible God, the creator, sustainer of all things, physical and spiritual, the one who is preeminent over everything. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge because in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him we have this new life. In him you are holy, set apart. Don't get swept away in these other things. Don't get pulled in by that. In Jesus you're a saint. You have everything that you need in him. Now whatever the particular heresy was in Colossae really isn't the point. If we needed to know that, God would have told us that. But what we have uh, is this letter from Paul that confronts us as well. We need to ask not so much what is the Colossian heresy, but what's the Olds heresy? What's the Albertan heresy, the Canadian heresy, the Western heresy? Commentator Dick Lucas gave this warning. He says, the churches of Christ can never be immune from the intellectual and spiritual pressure and fashions of their time. Can never be immune. We have spiritual and intellectual pressures and fashions that pull on us. He goes on to say, um, while we see this clearly when we look back to earlier generations, it's less easy to see for us, it's less, less easy for us to recognize this, frankly, in our own time. So we look back at at history and we have what C.S. Lewis called a chronological snobbery. We think, how did they fall for that? They were so dense. Like, what what an obvious trap. Like, it's so plain. How could they possibly believe those things? And all the while, we are fish swimming in the ocean of our own culture, our own society, our own intellectual fashions and pressures. Our, Our enemy is smarter than to try to deceive us with with 2,000-year-old heresies. Especially when we come preloaded with our own modern deceptions and distractions that we don't even see. We have got to be on guard against our own assumptions, our own ways of thinking. And, and, And these are, those kind of, some of them just such fundamental assumptions that we don't even see it. We hear this even right now and we're thinking, I'm glad that's not me. I wonder who here is duped. No, No, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. We need to be so critical of our own hearts and minds. We are those who have these wrong ideas that work their way in. We're not immune. And and I'd love to just kind of sit here and catalog all of the, the ways that our Western culture pulls us and affects us, but there's two problems with that plan. One is, is that the different ways that our culture and our world affect us and pull on us and distort our thinking are, are just beyond number. I mean, you can't make a list. It's too big. There's so many different ways. They're, they're subtle and, and, and they're pervasive. The other problem is, as has already been said, we're typically blind to them. They're hard to see because we're, we're fish in the water. We are the frog in the slowly warming pot. It's hard to answer exactly what temperature it is. So it's difficult. But, but if we push down to the root, the heart of the problem that, that tra- transcends the details, if we get beyond the myriad of symptoms right to what the disease is, I think we can narrow it down and say the danger in Colossae and the danger uh, that Paul continues to warn us against today is Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Right? Colossians, it was Jesus plus Jewish tradition. You need Jesus plus visions and, and these ecstatic experiences. Jesus plus a, a higher wisdom, a higher understanding. Jesus plus worshiping these angels. You want the fullness of true Christian life. If you want the real new life, you need Jesus. That's fine. But then you also need a little more. Where do you see it? Where do we see it in our own world, this Jesus plus? If you really want to have the new life, and we can pick on some obvious ones. If you really want to have the new life, you need Jesus plus faith. 
the faith to ask for a new car and a full bank account. And, and you need Jesus plus the faith to ask for complete healing of all your physical ailments. If you have Jesus plus that, then you've made it. How about this one? Growing at terrifying speed in churches around us. You really want the new life, the fullness of what God has for you? You need Jesus plus prophecy. You need Jesus plus some secondary filling of the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus plus hearing directly from God. Jesus plus Lectio Divina or Emmanuel journaling. If you don't have those things added, you're missing out. You don't have the fullness of the new life. Oh, you poor You poor people, you only have Jesus as recorded in that stuffy old Bible? Oh, I closed that years ago. I have Jesus plus revelation. That's dangerous. That's prolific. There's no Jesus plus. It's just Jesus. Maybe if we were to push this a little bit closer, and those are ones we're easier to look out at because that's not hitting us right at home. Some others, maybe Jesus plus social justice, Jesus plus tolerance and acceptance, Jesus plus affirming to the LGBTQ. But let's push this down to our world. What about Jesus plus conservative politics, right? Isn't that, isn't that necessary? Jesus plus the right preachers, the right podcasts on your phone. You got to have those. For the new life, right? The the message of the gospel, the message of Colossians, we have new life in Christ and Christ alone. That's what we need. We need more of him and him alone. Again, just perusing through Colossians, what do we have in Christ? Verse 13, chapter 1. In him we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred in his glorious kingdom. Verse 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 20, in him we are reconciled to God. Verse 22, in him we will be presented holy and blameless above reproach before the Lord. Verse 27, Christ is our hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 3, in him we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 11, in him you are set apart and made part of God's holy people. Verse 12, in him you were raised to new life. Verse 19, in him we are nourished and knit together as a body that grows strong and healthy. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we looked at last Sunday. In him we have been raised to new life. We have currently that new life and we will gloriously one day be raised to new life. If that's all I get in Jesus, I'm okay with that. I don't know what else to add to that. I don't need anything else. Those who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus are God's holy and beloved saints. They have new life in him, in him alone. So be on guard. We need to be on on careful watch that we don't ever add to Jesus. We don't let anything else creep in. And that comes back to the authority of Colossians, right? We need to read the Bible assuming that our culture and our world around us and and things that feel so right to us are wrong, need to be corrected, need to be repented of. Assuming that we have areas in our thinking that are misguided, we need to be eager to be corrected by God's Word. Look for places where Scripture makes you uncomfortable and lean into that. Desire correction, even when it hurts even when it destroys something that that you once thought was very important. So it takes us back to the the authority of Colossians. It also points us forward then to the grace of Colossians. That's point four. Paul wraps up this introduction with this simple statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, every other epistle Paul writes, it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Christ. That's strangely missing here. I think because he's about to go on for four chapters about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not missing it. He's expanding it. But he says this this grace and peace. And I think we read that so, so naturally in the context of how we're used to hearing words like that. We read it as if it's empty and hollow. Right? It sounds like good luck. It sounds like, hey, all the best to you. 
my very favorite. Our thoughts are with you. I don't care. Why are you thinking about me? What difference does that make? The worst, this just, this just grinds me. When we take the powerful, mighty weapon of prayer and we connect it to thoughts as if they're the same thing. Thoughts and prayers. No. No, no. It's nice that you're thinking about me. I guess I shouldn't be bitter about that. But pray for me. Prayer is a, is a powerful weapon. We don't, we don't mix that, degrade that as if thoughts and prayers are the same thing. And this is Paul not just wishing them, you know, grace and peace, thoughts, and, thoughts are with you. Um, he's praying for them right here. Not just saying, hey, I'll pray for you someday. He's saying, I, I am praying for you. I'm praying right now that grace and peace would be with you from God. And this is the prayer, but, but more than that, he's not just praying for grace to them. In the writing of this letter, Paul is actually being God's tool of grace to them. He's the, the conduit of God's grace to them in these four chapters. He does this a few times. Um, he begins the letter, you'll see in, in verse 2 there, uh, grace to you. And then if you look at the very back of the book, chapter 4, verse 18, it ends with grace be with you. So grace to you and then grace be with you. What's the implication of those bookends? He starts the letter saying, may you have God's grace to give you peace, praying for, for God's grace to come to them. And, and then I think the letter itself is the delivery of God's grace. It's God's precious word direct from Christ to them, to strengthen them, to bless them, to encourage them. And then he ends, having written this letter, um, may that grace be with you. May it remain with you. Walk in this grace. God's word is a gift of grace that leads to peace. True peace. The, the, I love the, the, this idea, the Jewish idea of shalom. Right? It's, it's not just like the war ended. Um, it's full rest and fullness and strength and health and, and satisfaction and contentment and joy. That's what we have in Christ. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. How do we get that? We get it in Christ. It's all in Christ. John 15 is all about that. Jesus, abide in me. If you abide in me, you'll have life. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If you abide in me, your joy will be full. So how do we abide in Christ? Where do we find him today? Well, he tells us in John 15, verse 7, it says, if you abide, with, abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Starting to see the theme? Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be with you and your joy may be full. We abide in Christ as we abide in his word. As his words abide in us, as we obey his commandments, as we live in his teaching and where are Christ's words? Where are his commandments? Where is his teaching? It's right here. It's right here. And not just those red letters, but all of the New Testament is the word of Christ for us. Jesus speaking through his authoritative representatives and even the Old Testament. is The, the, the law and the prophets all pointing to Christ. Do you want God's grace in your life? Do you want to live in his peace? It's available. It's there for the taking. God's word is his delivery system of grace to you. In these pages, we find Christ. And in Christ, we have peace. Do you see God's word that way? It is so easy to leave this book closed and think of it as these laws and rules and restrictions. And the, and the world would say that. Why do you follow all of that? 
How do you even keep track of everything you're supposed to do and not do and all the rules and the law and it, and it just sucks the joy out of life and, and Christians are supposed to be these, these boring, dull people that never do anything fun. What a lie of the devil. This is joy and joy in the full. That's what Christ promised. There's life in these pages. We need to read it. We need to believe it. We need to submit ourselves to it. I pray that will be our experience together as we walk through the book of Colossians over the next months. That God would be at work by his grace in us through his word, that his Holy Spirit would be transforming us through his word. But I hope this isn't the only place that you're getting God's word. Right, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As much as you need food, you need this. Right? I don't know how many of you eat once a week. Um, I've cut down my eating, but not that far. Um, that's a little crazy. We need this grace. I hope you're, you're going home and this book doesn't sit closed on your nightstand. This is God's tool for our peace. We need to read it. We should be regularly, consistently training ourselves in God's word. That takes discipline. That takes hard work. I hate getting up early in the morning, but I have to. But that discipline gives way to delight as we learn to abide in Christ through his word. As he brings peace into our lives, as we submit to him and walk with him. Uh, again, doesn't mean the chaos ends. It doesn't mean all my physical suffering goes away and my, my money problems evaporates. It means I have peace in the middle of that because I'm rooted in Christ. Because my life is hidden with Christ in God. Fathers, I hope you're reading the Bible with your children. You're training them in the word and teaching them to begin to read it for themselves. Man, I never had that. I, I'm so, I was chatting with, I, I'm going to pick on you. I think it was Peter said, you were like a teenager and your parents had you just reading through the Bible, right? I'm just going to, yeah. So he read through the Bible what, a couple of times before he even graduated. Like, how cool is that? How many have that blessing? Man, are my kids going to grow up uh, having been saturated in God's word and just having that habit in place that that's just part of their life. They get up in the morning, they spend time in God's word. It's not a battle, it's my routine. What a beautiful thing and how God could use that in the lives of our kids as we train them. So often we cry out for grace, for strength, for peace, and our Bibles sit closed. It shouldn't be that way. This is God's word, authoritative and true. This is God's grace to you to give you peace. So take it, read it, trust it, submit to it, abide with Christ in it. I invite Josh and Marisa to join me back up here. Um, as we submit to this word and read it and abide in it, one of the things it commands us to do is communion. Is to join together in partaking the bread and the juice as this reminder of the, the life and death of Christ on our behalf. Celebrating what we have, this, this new life in Christ, reorienting ourselves again. Um, it's Christ alone. Right? This, is, this is no more Jesus plus I just need Jesus, and oh, how I need Jesus. And so we're going to partake of communion together. Um, we're going to sing and have some time to, to reflect and, and prepare for that. Uh, and then I'll come back up and we'll partake together. Would you stand? Um, let's worship our God.